ladies and gentlemen, it is that time yet again, broadcasting almost live from deep beneath an old linens and things. It's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is our other host and my Socialist of the Month calendars business partner, Tyler Crawley. How's it going? I think that is a very good business idea. One, I, when did Linz and Things go out of business? I, I don't even, I, the name sounds familiar. So was it like the first bath in, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond? Yeah, it kind of okay. was. I, they probably bought them out, truth be told. But I don't okay. know. Don't, so were, don't, don't hold like, me to that. They were like the circuit city of Best Buy. <laughs> like they had yes, the idea, exactly. but they just did it better sort of policy. Yeah, no, that's it. It was like a what, kitchen and more or whatever that is. Gotcha. It'll probably be the next one to go. Gotcha. There's a weird store in our, our mall down here that sells like kitchen stuff. It's like weird to see it in the mall. All right. But other words, <laughs> in other news, I thought, I thought you were just going to talk about the whatever centerfold you've picked out for this month's socialist <laughs> or the calendar. Uh, I got to tell you, I get, well, you know what? They're all skinny. I can tell you that much. They are all skinny. So if you're going to do a socialist calendar of the month, they are all very, very skinny because they have no food. Uh, but I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about the big announcement today. Bernie Sanders, everyone has been just on pins and needles waiting to see if he's going to announce. And of course he did. Uh, you know, what else is he going to do? And where did he announce? Vermont Public Radio, because of course he did. Where, where else would Bernie Sanders announce that he was running than, of course, uh, on Vermont Public Radio? He talked about the normal things. Everything is going to be free. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the greatest time ever. However, interestingly enough, he attacked Howard Schultz uh, and criticized him for running as an independent. I'm not sure if anyone's told Bernie Sanders that he is an independent who just happens to be running in the uh, Democrats uh, primary. I'm not sure if he's aware of that, but he seemed very upset that Howard Schultz was running as an independent. Uh, he also, important to note, raised a million dollars in three and a half hours, more than anyone else so far that has announced. And interestingly enough, today, a audio clip started making the rounds on Twitter. And for the first time ever on Tavern Voices, we are going to play an audio clip. And here is the clip that broke today, along with Bernie Sanders' announcement that he is running for president. You know, it's funny. Sometimes American journalists talk about how bad a country is because people are lining up for food. That's a good thing. In other countries, people don't line up for food. The rich get the food and the poor starve to death. I love it. I love the false dichotomy. It's my favorite part of that clip. You know, the, having a bread line is better than not having bread. In fact, I hope that is Bernie Sanders sort of tagline, Bernie 2020, because a bread line is better than no bread. Kevin, is America ready for another rich, old, anti-immigrant, Russia-loving white guy? Yes, we can never have enough of those. I, apparently not. I, I saw that clip and I was uh, the the listeners should know that I didn't know what clip that was going to be either until just now. And um, <laughs> you know, I saw that on Facebook already. It's great that it's making the rounds. And what I really what really strikes me as as great about that clip is this is the justification that the elitist, wealthy socialists in America always come up with. They think that they don't even understand poverty or they don't even know a poor person. They show up in their Volvo once a year to, to, to scoop out a little bit of soup at a soup kitchen for a photo op. That's about all they understand. And they really think that capitalism is so awful that they don't see the great benefits and all the wonderful things that have come from a capitalist country. Instead, they say we need more socialism while socialism is failing every day all around the world. 
you need look no further than a freaking newspaper to see how well socialism works out. <laughs> yeah. It's a current one too, you know, old ones, current ones, everything. But he, here's my favorite part about that is he's like, you know, bread line beats uh, no bread. And it's like, yeah, but there's another option. It's called abundance. It's called a bread in every store that's affordable for everyone. And those only exist in capitalist countries. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories about people in the late 80s, early 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and people from the former USSR came to America and would walk into a grocery store and would start crying because they'd never seen something like that before. I mean, it was it was something that they were promised when socialism took over was this is what socialism was. And here they are in a capitalistic country that they were told was evil and was awful. This is precisely what they were promised. And that's what's so funny is that what socialism promises is what capitalism delivers. I mean, that's that's the, the 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 funny aspect of the entire ideological debate is that we don't need socialism for a utopia. It already exists right here in the United States, and they keep telling us that it'll only be better. I mean, it doesn't get better than what we have right now. I mean, true, there are problems. Obviously, people talk about income inequality, but the reality is, is that we've tried everything else <laughs> in the, that's ever been thought possible. Uh, with the human race. And this is the one thing where the people are the most prosperous, they live the longest, and they have the most. So why are we trying to change it for something that's failed every single time it's been tried? Yeah, that's what I don't understand. And one of the things that I've really thought a lot about, especially since um, reading uh, Jonah Goldberg's book, Suicide of the West. Yeah. Fantastic book. And it talks a lot about how capitalism is really you know, I think capitalism gets a bad rap because a lot of people point to one thing or another. They talk about a rich CEO or they talk about, like you said, wealth inequality. And they don't stop to look at what the actual underlying system is. In socialism, you have force and authoritarianism. And in capitalism, you have freedom to interact how you wish. You don't have to kill somebody else to take their property. You can buy it. <laughs> you don't have to kill someone else or steal from someone to get food or to get things that you need in your life. You go to freaking Walmart and you can buy anything you want for $1.99, right? But nobody talks about how these systems are built that. Instead, they they berate the, the Walton family for what they've accumulated in wealth instead of saying, wow, we have poor people across the country that have better access to food, clothes, home goods. I mean, everyone has a flat screen TV now that is living around the poverty line because of things like, Walmart, international trade. And so that's where it kind of circles into the whole Trump protectionism falls into the AOC Bernie Sanders category of trying to tear down things that have actually had positive impacts on our society. Well, I, I've started rereading uh, Neil Ferguson's book, Civilization, which is you know, a difficult read for me because he's a very smart guy. And he's talking, you know, it's about civilization and, and, and uh, you know, and sort of the rise of the West. And and uh, it's just, it, it's an amazing book. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm I, I, you know, I shouldn't say I'm rereading it. I've tried to read it like five or six times and I always get about halfway through. And so now here's the time where I'm going to read all the way through it. But what was funny is what they were talking about and, and what he mentioned you know, in the first chapter is that a lot of history and for most of history until recently, uh, history was made by people who lived very short lives. You know, they talked about people of history, you know, you know, 
Henry the Eighth and and you know just you know important people you know from the you know the Ming Dynasty. These people died at like thirty five years old. I mean, if that. I mean, some people were making history in their twenties because the lifespan was so short. And now people yeah, I are think living. Alexander the Great was what thirty two or yeah. thirty three something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And we think about now and we look at the pictures and go, oh, they must have been 50, 60, 70, 80. It's like no, they were like thirty. And so it's changed so much over the last 100, 200 years. And another funny thing about that is talking about the bread lines, uh, the poor people, I mean, if you would have told people 100 years ago that a problem in America would be that the poor people are fat, like that's the problem, they would have laughed at you because, I mean, people at that time were dying of starvation and disease and it was people who didn't have enough. And now the problem with our country is that people have access to too much uh, and they don't have access to certain kinds of food. And so our poor people are fat. And that is something that has never happened in the history of the world that the poor have are, are, are overweight and it's causing a problem. That is an amazing development that nobody realizes because, and this is the problem with income inequality, is that people's, you know, the way they look at their uh, abundance is that abundance is subjective. And so even though everything is great for people now, they look at their lives and go, yeah, but that billionaire has a private jet or that billionaire you know, has three houses. I only have one house and a car that's like 10 years old. When they don't realize that the car you have now is better than the car John D. Rockefeller drove, the richest man that's ever existed. And it, that's one of the biggest problems is how do you fight the subjective nature of, of, of the human condition where people don't judge them where they are in historical context. They judge their life based on what's happening now. And it creates all these problems. And socialists, um, I think, prey on that. Yeah, well, it kind of begs to bring up the idea of what role the media plays in this. And Tyler, you know, we've had two years of a Trump presidency now, and there has been, yeah, <laughs> right. It, it's the the presidency that will never end. We will we will be old. We will look like Alexander the Great did at age thirty five exactly. by the time that that Trump leaves office, but. You know, during this presidency, there's been fireworks at press conferences, which is generally what I enjoy watching. I get some popcorn going and go, oh, look, they're in the, the Brady press briefing room. Let's let's see what today's going to be like. And you hear the phrase fake news a lot. And on this very podcast, we've actually talked a lot about Trump's accusations of the media and how generally the media keeps stooping to new lows to prove he's right despite the fact that he was probably not right in his original context. But on a podcast recently, acclaimed CBS News foreign correspondent Laura Logan fired shots across her own bow as a journalist. In fact, when asked about modern journalism and some of these poor um, decisions being made by the mass media, she said, quote, that's not journalism. Responsibility for fake news begins with us. We bear some responsibility for that, and we're not taking ownership of that and addressing it. We just want to blame it all on somebody else, end quote. I didn't have a cool sound clip like you, Tyler. I had to <laughs> read it like the good old days. But here, Tyler, as a man in the media, do you think that really Trump has been right this whole time? I don't know if I would say he's right, because what's funny is that there's – there's uh, you know in that clip I played of Bernie Sanders – what is Bernie Sanders doing? He's bashing the media. I mean, no one in this country has ever has ever gone, you know, has has, has ever been poor, or um, has ever had a problem uh, when it comes to bashing the media. Everyone loves to bash the media. What's problem under Trump that's so amazing to me is it's almost like they're playing into it. I I, I, I don't know what they're doing, but you couldn't script it any better. I mean, just 
2019, we've already had two major stories absolutely collapse on the mainstream media. One was the Covington uh, kids on the national uh, or out in front of the Lincoln Memorial. That story completely blew up in their face. And now this this uh, Jesse Smollett story. And they don't learn. <laughs> I mean, what's amazing is that, I mean, the Smollett story happened almost immediately after the Covington story. And they learned nothing from it. And I get it because, you know, what, what, I've, what I've sort of learned covering Trump over these last, uh, well, two years since he's been in office, is that the one thing that you need to realize with Trump is that he says a lot, uh, but he doesn't actually follow through on a lot. And I don't mean that that doesn't mean he's he's not getting things done. Uh, I mean, clearly he's, you know, we have the tax cuts and he's put people on the Supreme Court, he's put people in other courts. So Trump is doing things, but his most horrific statements where he talks about, you know, going after SNL or he talks about going after somebody and the press is the enemy of the people, he never actually does anything. He never actually does that. Or he talks, I mean, the only thing, this is the worst thing that he's done recently, of course, is the, uh, I believe, uh, uh, unilateral move with regards to declaring the national emergency to to build his wall. That was the first time he actually followed through on one of the kind of crazy things that he said. Normally he doesn't. And what Trump is really good at, and I don't know if he does it on purpose or not, it's hard to tell with him, but it's almost like he does that knowing the press is going to go crazy, but he never actually follows through. So the press just goes crazy talking about the words that he says, but it's not his action. Meanwhile, someone like Barack Obama, who did a lot of things unilaterally, did a lot of executive orders the press never cared. And so it really makes the press look bad. And like I said, I don't know if Trump does it on purpose or not, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a problem. I mean, cause like I said, Trump says a lot of crazy stuff, but thank goodness he doesn't actually follow through on a lot of it. And the one thing you need to learn is to not, is to go, okay, he said that's crazy, but is he actually going to do it? And then if he does criticize him, like criticize this executive order, the national, you know, emergency declaration. But if he just says, hey, we're going after SNL and never does it, then don't don't worry about it. And I think that's the pro that's the thing the press needs to learn. Well, I, well, I think that that was referenced a bit in that interview on CNN with Amanpour and John Stewart and Dave Chappelle. And they kind of said, you know, Trump tries to inflame the media and they respond by proving him right yeah. because they get so defensive and say, no, we are so noble. We are so great as the media. And then they are out there just really pushing an agenda. And I think that's something else that Laura gets to in this interview that she had on this podcast where she's kind of talking about what is what is the journalist's role? Is it supposed to be advocating for issues? Is it supposed to be proving you're right? Is it supposed to be pushing for a particular philosophical ideology? And I think that's what it's gotten to. And you even mentioned it just now where you said if Trump does something, then criticize him. Is that ever really the media's role to criticize anyone? You know, I think that's where things started to really get messy is when you have the 24-hour news cycles and you had now Fox News versus MSNBC and it's let's criticize people based on our particular philosophies in these certain circles instead of just saying, here's the news, here's what happened. And now I don't think that there ever really is a true objective news. I don't think Walter Cronkite was completely objective. But it was it was very much not as opinionated as it is now. Well, but and I think that's the I think that's the slippery part of all of it. I'm not saying that they should be opinionated, but if someone says something that's factually incorrect, I mean, the thing is, I have no problem with the press fact checking Donald Trump. I love it when they do that, and I and I have no problem with them doing that. That is the role of the media, is to be in some cases. But you have to be a legit fact checker. You know, so many of these fact checks are opinion oriented where they go, you know, Donald Trump will say something that's absolutely true and they don't like it. 
And so they'll go, well, technically Trump was correct, but you know, we don't like it. So we're going to give it like one or two Pinocchios. That's not how fact checking works. And that's the problem is that the press absolutely should call out Trump when he says things or when he, when he points to the crisis at the border and people say, you know, well, you know what? This is the, you know, the, the, the we've had the least amount of crossings at the border now than we did in comparison to 15 years ago. Uh, you know, X amount of you know, the crime rate in the United States is actually dropping, uh, you know, pretty precipitously over the last 20 years or so. There's been a little uptick here and there, but for the most part, far safer. I mean, New York, you couldn't even walk around 20 years ago. It's far safer than it ever was. And so when he says things like that, call him out. Absolutely. But what upsets Republicans, especially me, is that they don't call out Obama when he says BS or Bernie Sanders. When Bernie Sanders says about how great socialism is or when he talks about how we absolutely can pay for Medicare for all or college for all or, you know, the Green New Deal. And nobody goes, that makes no sense. There is no way we can pay for that. And, and, and they they don't badger Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren the same way they do Trump. That's what's frustrating. I want the press to do that. They're supposed to be, you know, our uh, voice. They're supposed to represent us. And so when people in power say ridiculous things, they need to challenge it, but they only challenge the Republicans. And that's where the media bias comes in. Okay. Yes. 110% agree with you on that one. Um, misunderstood what you meant by, by calling them out. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to think when they, when they state things that aren't true, call them out. I I don't mean what I disagree. It's to say, no, that's not a correct number that you're saying. Yes, absolutely. And and that's why you're supposed to have news teams. And that's, that's probably where the the fake news mess is coming from is they're, they're supposed to have people looking into things, checking numbers, checking facts, looking into the scope of a story before just reporting on it. Well, it's funny, too, because uh, CNN today announced that they were hiring uh, someone. I can't remember her name. It's Sarah. I can never pronounce her name. Uh, she used to work for Jeff Sessions. And she's been a longtime Republican you know, person behind the scenes. And Tommy Vitter, who you know worked for uh, Barack Obama, the famous – that was like five years ago, bro, or something like that. Or like, dude, that was three years ago. Remember when he said that with, uh, with Brett Baer? He was criticizing CNN like, oh, yeah, I guess you guys aren't objective anymore. I mean, <laughs> anyone that can look at CNN and say they're objective is insane. But that's the problem is our biases are so strong that we see objectivity based on something that we agree with 100%. That's not object. You're supposed to – if you disagree with – you agree with someone 100% of the time, they're not objective because you got to be wrong about a few things. And that's that's one of the biggest problems today. And there's no better example of that than what is happening right now in North Carolina with this ninth congressional district's uh, or district ridiculousness. There's a, there's a trial going on right now. The State Board of Elections is having an evidentiary hearing looking into the ballot harvesting allegations that took place in the ninth district. We don't have time to go through all of it. It's day two right now. Uh, yesterday was day one of the hearing. Uh, Lisa Britt, who is actually the daughter-in-law of the man at the center of all this, a guy named McCray Dallas. We've talked about that before here on the podcast. He's the one that was hired by the Mark Harris campaign, uh, who apparently was ballot harvesting in the ninth district. And from what we can tell, at least according to Lisa Britt's testimony and others' testimony, and now we've actually heard from Kim Strzok, who is the director of the SBOE, she said, yeah, I mean, what they found is there absolutely was bar, uh, ballot harvesting going on. I think it's far more, I think it's far worse than anyone thinks, because not only was this guy McCray Dallas uh, a part of it, but we now know that he was actually meeting with the Democrat PAC, a group called the Bladen County Association Improvement PAC that was working with Democrats. And it seemed like they were almost working together 
and to make sure they weren't stepping on each other's toes. I think that was actually one of the lines that was used by Lisa Britt, who was testifying yesterday. And so this isn't just Republicans. This is Democrats as well. But it seems like both sides are unwilling to just call out and say, you know what, what's going on in Bladen County is ridiculous. It's almost like, but your guy was worse. No, no, your guy was worse. I mean, this thing is a mess, absolutely a mess. And the one thing that's getting almost no attention that's driving me crazy is that Mark Harris, uh, I think it was last week, gave an interview in which he said the one thing that's you know sort of sparked his attention about this guy, McCray Dallas, because nobody really knew who he was. He was kind of operating in Bladen County, especially, you know, statewide races no one's gonna really care about. But the ninth district, obviously, a little bit more attention. And they realized that in the uh, 2016 race, one of his opponents, Mark Harris, that is, a guy named Todd Johnson, got 98% of the absentee ballots in Bladen County. Mark Harris said that he thought about filing a complaint because he saw 98%. As I've said many a times, 98% is a ridiculous number. I mean, even dictators don't give themselves 98%. They give them like 92 or 93 because they're like, that would be crazy. So he got 98% of the vote. Harris thought about filing a complaint, instead hired him. And now here we are. And so to me, that was a complete judgment lap by Mark Harris. Everyone, oh, how would he? And everyone's saying, well, he didn't know. Yeah, he might not have known the intricate details, but he clearly thought something was wrong that he thought about filing a complaint. And instead of that, he hired the guy. And this is the problem with politics in, 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 you know, in particular, but also with the way that we approach it, because the Republicans are saying like, oh, well, if it's not 900 votes, which is how much you know, Harris is in the lead by, then maybe we shouldn't have a reelection. Um, or then we shouldn't, you know, then he should, the, the race should be certified. Democrats are claiming that there should be a new race. Um, Kevin, I don't really have a question <laughs> for you. I forgot to, to get one ready, but uh, I mean, I guess what's your take on this whole, I mean, I, I think that we should just hold a new election. I mean, the fact that so many people seem to be involved and I don't even know who you trust. I don't see how you certified this race in any way, shape or form. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you finished now? <laughs> Dude, it's okay. I could have I gone it. on for another five minutes. There's so much craziness <laughs> I am, happening. I am well aware. You know, in CPAC, in at CPAC in 2008, we saw Rush Limbaugh speak without notes or teleprompter yeah. for about two hours. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a right. while. And, and I know he's your hero, so that's what you're going for. <laughs> it's totally fine. It is. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about talking nonstop for as much as you did. Trump, in fact, Trump likes uh, what, that. Trump's a big fan of that. Oh, he's great off the cuff, but he just repeats himself and uses words like hugely. Um, <laughs> Bigly. <laughs> at least at least Rush has a little bit of variety in his language. But um, but I wasn't concerned. I had a timer set and everything. It would have woken me up at some point during during the podcast. But no, I'm glad you said all that because I, when I texted you today, I said, I am sure you're going to be talking about the Ninth District. I mean, it was because- crazy. That, that was only day one. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> today's day two. And then who knows? There's 80 people that are supposed to be that have been subpoenaed. Three of them uh, spoke yesterday. <laughs> so we'll see what keeps happening. Well, it was funny this morning. I was watching CNBC and Bernie Frank was on there and um, I actually kind of liked him for the first 38 seconds of his interview. And he said something really funny. He said, I'm always an honest person. I will give you the truth. If you ask for it, if you want the whole truth, you have to provide a subpoena. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was a good one-liner. Um, but yeah, no, in, in all honesty, this whole thing is a mess. And I think really the underlying issue, though, and I, this will never be addressed, is that the voting system in the state of North Carolina is broken. The systems in place, the policies, the statutes surrounding voting are just 
flimsy at best. And to be honest, that's probably one of the things that frustrated me most last year with the constitutional amendments here in the state uh, was the concept of voter ID. People think that by requiring voter ID, this is why people went to the polls. They think that it will prevent someone from voting who shouldn't be voting. That It doesn't do that whatsoever. I mean, it's that's really a big lie because the underlying laws about voting are so flimsy that really all it's doing is saying, here's a picture of someone who claims they live at this address, which is no different than somebody walking up claiming they live in an address. It didn't do anything to fortify the idea of making sure that the person voting lives in that particular district and is who they say they are. That being said, I think that there's a giant mess going on. I think it has absolutely been Democrats and Republicans abusing this system. I think they've been using it for their advantage for years and years. Um, and but but nothing's really going to change because for it to change, people are going to have to step back on both sides of the aisle and say we want to fortify the election process. And anytime anything is brought up about fortifying the election process, it is decried. I remember listening to the floor debates back in whenever November after the constitutional amendment had passed and they're trying to write the law around it. And you had a few of the real constitutional minded people. I believe it was uh, representatives Pittman, uh, Jordan, Speciali, Blust, who were saying we need to make these laws stricter on who is allowed to vote. These IDs don't do anything. And they were shot down by the majorities in both parties. So I, I don't know what I guess it's doom and gloom. I don't see anything positive coming from these these hearings. Someone might get in trouble, but then there's nothing to stop someone else from doing it in the future. Well, and I think it's the reason I brought up the fact that they were almost coordinating. At least that's how it seemed with uh, the Democrat pack is that it's clearly not partisan. I mean, people act like, oh, they're fighting for like a cause. And this is about two guys or girls. I'm, I don't know who's running the Bladen pack who are just trying to make money. I mean, Dallas got paid a just ton of money uh, to do this. And that's really what it all comes down to is that they were just doing it for the money. This wasn't about, you know, they, they, they found a loophole and they found a way because one of the things that was very evident in Lisa Britt's testimony was that she was very, or that, that, that Dallas was very worried about raising red flags. I mean, he knew what he was doing was wrong and they didn't want to get, you know, I guess I don't know the, the, the election term would be but audited and have everything sort of come to light. And so he was very concerned about that, but it wasn't because he really cared about because he, he worked for Democrats in the past. I mean, he's he, this guy doesn't have an ID. This guy's not ideological. But the one thing that worries me, and I've always said this about crime, and this is, um, I think, especially with with voter fraud, is that I don't think Dallas is a very smart guy. And you know, I think that's why he got caught. What worries me, I mean, obviously, the 98 percent with the Todd Johnson, no, no smart person would do that. What are the smart people? Are, are smart people doing this? Because if they are, we have no idea. Because we're only able to catch the idiots. Um, it's the people that are smart that are taking advantage of the system that worries me because there'll be no signs of it. And that's what really, I think, terrifies a lot of people. Yeah, I don't I personally don't know what what is ultimately positive going to come from this situation other than probably a messy recount. And it might happen in November. And if you live in Durham County here in North Carolina, or I guess the Durham city limits, there might be something else on your ballot this November. And so while this doesn't apply to most people, I just had to bring this topic up because it really is just liberalism at its finest. So today, the mayor of Durham announced that he had a great new idea to fix their affordable housing situation. What he's proposing is a $95 million bond referendum 
That would be on the ballot this coming November. He said, quote, we have to decide if we as a community really want to do something about gentrification and affordable housing, or if we're just going to complain about it. Are we going to talk about racial equality a lot, but then just ignore it when it comes uh, when it comes to the biggest equity challenge our city faces? End quote. So this plan is to have millions of dollars available for nonprofit developers to buy homes and hold them up to five years at a low interest rate. In short, to make it simple, it's a tax on property owners to fund properties for non-property owners. Tyler, when will urban planners finally develop the first community that is equal parts safe and bourgeoisie and poverty stricken and crime ridden? <laughs> oh, I love I love this debate because this goes back to the beginning of the podcast where we were talking about you know, social circle socialism promises what capitalism delivers. And if you want affordable housing, if you want all of the problems that come that people you know are concerned about with regards to gentrification, everything else, capitalism is the way you solve that. Um, subsidies will always run out, as Margaret Thatcher famously said. Socialism, the problem is you run out of people's money. You can't continue it in perpetuity. You're eventually you're 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 going to run out of money. So the way to do it is to build. And it's not surprising that the places that have the worst housing inequality also have the worst zoning laws and regulations with regards to builders. We actually have a problem like that right down here in Southeast North Carolina in Wilmington. Housing prices have gotten pretty darn expensive. And a lot of it's because it's difficult, especially downtown at the beach and other places for people to build. And so that's where the real estate is the priciest. And so the solution always is, is to, to let builders go in there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, your point about you know, neighborhoods that are bad and they want them fixed up and they want them to be nice places to live. But what happens is that then people want to live there. And so they move in and they run the, the, the cost of real estate up. And so that's, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. And I've always said that, that, you know, people down here always complain about, you know, builders wanting to build and they are under this impression. And I guess, I don't know what causes it, but they actually think that it's the building that makes people want to move somewhere. I'm like, people want to move somewhere because they like it. Like Wilmington, for example, it's a destination. People want to move here. It's great climate, beach, downtown, all this. And so they're going to keep moving here. And so all they're going to do is push out all of the people that are already here unless we are allowed to build. And the same thing that's going to happen is if they build up these you know, inner cities and this is what's happening right now. In fact, it used to be the big problem in our society was the urban environments had sort of been left to, to crumble. Now they're concerned about the exact opposite. Um, uh, suburbs are now facing that problem. And now as everyone moves back to the, to the urban environments, the suburbs are being left to crumble. And so the reality is, is the government can't fix it. Central planning can't fix it. The market will fix it if you let it work, but they never tend to do. Yeah. And I think that what the real underlying issue is, is whenever you look at forced results, whenever you look at essentially socialism, not to beat that word with a dead horse or however that phrase goes. But <laughs> when you look at that, what it really and truthfully means is bringing everyone down in, in, in the guise of saying you're trying to bring the people at the bottom up. What markets and capitalism does is takes takes everyone up. Yeah, the, the rich are going to get richer. So should everyone else. And the more the rich make things commodities, they get passed down. So then poor people have flat screen TVs and wireless internet in their homes. Things that were debated 15 years ago were now very commonplace. Air conditioners, refrigerators, all of these rich people things are now so commonplace in the poorest areas of this country. 
And that's all due to the markets. And so when you look at something like affordable housing, they want all of these nice things to come in. They want and, and what they truthfully want is they they want the the government to instill. They want to force these things in there. They want the hipster things like breweries and cool restaurants and all this. But then they don't want people living there who don't fit a certain quota. But then the people who can live there have to have a, a certain income level to afford to go out to the hipster restaurants and breweries and all that cool stuff. And so it's constantly the idea of having your cake and eating it in having your cake and eating it too. And they don't get that whatsoever. It, it's like they want everything at one time, not realizing that, that you can't, I mean, you just physically can't. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's it, central planning doesn't work. Um, they've tried it. It doesn't work. We've tried it so many times. I'll tell you the, one of my favorite, favorite arguments, whenever someone will, will point out that the poor in this country, trying to point out how the poor in this country aren't so bad off. They'll say like, you know, 98% of the poor have a refrigerator, 98% have a DVD player, you know, 80% have, you know, cable, whatever it is. People always go, oh, huh, 98% have a, uh, have a refrigerator. Like, oh, wow, that's so amazing. Like, that's, that's so common. I'm like, yeah, it's common because of capitalism. Like, 100 years ago, it was not common that people had refrigerators in their houses. And there are still countries out there today where people don't have refrigerators because they're a luxury item. And so the fact that you look at it as some stupid appliance that's so commonplace that you would mock someone for acting like it's a luxury shows how completely out of touch you are with human history these things are luxuries the fact that they're not in this society tells you how good we have it yeah it's it's exactly what you pointed out it's subjectivism versus objectivism yeah and it's, and and, and uh, it, that is the one thing that makes politics so difficult because you can tell people all day long how great off they are but if they don't feel like they're great off then it's 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 falling on deaf ears yeah, no, it really is. And I think at this point, we're probably both falling on deaf ears. <laughs> so is there anything else we need to talk about since it's closing time? No, I think we're I think we're all good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and keep the streak alive. We'll come back, do it again next week, and maybe we'll have some new fake news stories to share with people. I'm game. All right. Let's do it. Have a great week, man. See you, dude.